Hi, everybody. This is Patty Negri. Welcome to the Witching Hour. We have an amazing guest for you this week. We do. We have author and world-class Halloween expert, Lisa Morton. You may recognize her from Ghost Magnet with my friend Bridget Marcourt or from all sorts of things. But before we bring on Lisa Morton for the Halloween season, where's Patty? Yep because this is the month that I am pretty much not anywhere close to home. So if you are listening to this on the week we first dropped, which is the week of Monday, October 17th, yes, over halfway to Halloween. Ah, Monday, October 17th, I am home for a couple of days, but Thursday I am leaving for upstate New York, Plattsville, New York, actually for the Dark Water Paracon. My friend Frankie Faronk is putting on his first Paracon. If you are anywhere near there, come on down. It's going to be great. We're going to do great stuffs and seances and galleries and magical people and Dark Water Paracon. You can get it on all my stuff. And that's where I will be if you are still in town. Tuesday, I am teaching now. What's the thing we start thinking about um, as we're getting into the holiday seasons? Going on a diet. Yeah, because it's like, oh, what happened this summer? We, we, in, as the beginning of fall and COVID. So Tuesday, if you are interested in either weight loss, body consciousness, and health, that is what I'm teaching in my University Magicus class. Um, I have been a professional dieter my entire life, so I know all the tips and tricks and magic to add to have the body that you want and make, have fun getting there. So if you're interested in that, this Tuesday, go to universitymagicus.com, Tuesday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. But even if you don't come live, you will get the video the next day. So I know we have time zones all over the world. That is Tuesday and of course, Wednesday, we've got The Witch's Movie Coven, 6 p.m. live on Pacific Time, 9 p.m. live Eastern. You get to participate with me, Heather Green, Jason Mankey, Courtney Buckley, and myself as we talk all things witch movies. Last week, we just did one of my favorites, The Witches of Eastwick, Cher, Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer. So I don't know what we're doing this week, but tune in and give us your opinions on all things witch movies. It'll be on YouTube. It'll be on my Facebook page. It'll be everywhere. And then next week, New Orleans. It's Halloween. Yes, we've hit it. And it's going to be a big one. I'm going in five, six days. Thursday, we have things opening Friday. I am going to be hosting the Witches Ball for AMC. Saturday night is the big Vampire Ball with AMC sponsored by Interview with a Vampire. Sunday is the big deep Belle Epoque kind of salon. Monday is Halloween, which I'll be hanging out in New Orleans. And Tuesday, I will come home to pass out for two days before I leave for Massachusetts. <laughs> but you guys, join us. There's only a couple tickets left for New Orleans. If you've not done a vampire ball if you've not done new orleans at halloween if you come two together are like magic so join us endlessnight.com look on my site look everywhere this next weekend join me in plattsville new york i don't know where that is but it's it's listed somewhere i don't even know where i'm going um but that's where patty is i'm everywhere join me <laughs> Hi, everybody. Guess what time it is? 
It is time for Willow to run away from the camera. No, it is time for the Willow Report. Yes, I did turn up the light a little, so I hope I'm not blinding you with my light. But she's a little dark girl, and she needs to lighten up her face a little. Um, as as is normal, I just woke her up from her afternoon nap. But this... Uh, now it's a good day, because we had the Willow yawn. Um... What I'm going to talk about today is my travels with the willow. Now, I've talked about it a little bit, how in the suitcase she and double yawn. Oh, yes. So how we travel with willow and the patterns we get. So she knows that mommy's not deserting her. We have mommy comes home all the time. So on a day that I'm going to leave, she, she knows immediately because the suitcase has come out. Sometimes the suitcases come out to unpack from the day before that I just got back, but there's usually at least a couple of days in between. But as soon as she sees that suitcase jump on the bed, mom, mom is leaving. Willa knows and Gracie knows that mom is leaving. So she gets a little sad. She gets a little, ha, ha, ha. She wants to get in the suitcase. She does get in the suitcase and we may post some beautiful, oh, a triple yarn? Are you that tired? Uh -huh. You guys need a dog. <laughs> um, she just wants to go with me. She gets in the suitcase. So we might post a couple little pictures of Willow, how we're getting ready to travel. Before she goes to sleep in the suitcase, yes, she always takes out a few things. It's like, I know I brought panties. I know I brought some socks. I know I brought another bra. But no, nope, I'll find those later under the coffee table. But she always replaces it with her best stuffed toy or her best chewy bone because I'll probably need those in Michigan or New York or New Orleans or wherever I'm going next. Especially needed them in Arizona last week. Um, what did she put in there? Yeah, she put in a, like actually it was good. She put in a, one of her little stuffed toy um, crystal balls. So she knew I was doing a seance. So it was a stuffed toy crystal ball was packed in my suitcase. That's my girl. Did you wake up? Would you wake up? No. But anyway, so we have to give her extra love. When I'm leaving, I have some willow time spent where I hold her just like this, where I hold her and I tell her how good she's going to be taken care of by daddy because he spoils her terribly, how she's always going to have a play date that, uh, that afternoon, most for sure, and how Grace will keep her company. And then I leave. She waits by the door a little bit, but then she runs off because she knows she has a great life without me all around the house. And then when it's time to come back, what is like 16 yawns today? <laughs> when we come back, um, she needs some willow time. I don't get to unpack. I don't get to do anything. What I have to do is hold this little girl in my arms and let her know how much I've missed her and her sister, Grace. I've got a big laugh with two big babies on it and how pretty she looks and how much I missed her. In between the phone calls that we made from wherever we were and the FaceTime to Willow, sending pictures back and forth from Carrie, pictures from the play date, but I have to give her that time because they they don't have a sense of time and space. Somebody told me that a long time. I'm not a dog psychologist. I don't know this, but they don't seem to have a sense of time and space. So if you've gone to the grocery store and you're gone for 20 minutes and you come back, oh my God, you've been on forever. Or if I've gone for three days and you come back, come back. Oh, my God, you've been gone for that same forever. So whether, again, I've been gone for two hours or two days, she needs that special time. So I throw everything on the floor. I throw everything on the big red chair. And I sit on the floor with this baby girl. 
and we kiss and we hug and we kiss the kitten and we hug. I am totally lulling her back to sleep. And then we can unpack and get on with our day. So if you guys travel a lot, and I know a lot of you do, we're a very transient kind of world right now. Remember your babies don't quite understand where you're going. They don't, oh, they don't quite. So you get, give them that little extra time before, give them that little extra time after, set ground rules of what they can pack and unpack if need be. And then make sure you have lots of babies to come home to. Anyway, simple and sweet today, but I'm getting ready to leave again, and I just got back. So that's the Willow Report. Okay, this week's magic class or spell class, I'm going to talk about boxes, magic boxes. Boxes have been used in magic forever and ever and ever. The case here and the, we put our fest jewelry in it. We put all sorts of magical things within it. You know, magic is in boxes or boxes can be magic. We call them little ovens in the witchcraft. You could call it a wishing box if you don't even want. So there's a reason all these magical little boxes we create, um, any kind of boxes. Here's a nice little, oh, nice little pentagram box. And what you could put in it is create it. This is, you could put it on your altar. You could put it on somewhere special. Hmm, I'm gonna put things I want to cook, like cook in the oven. I want to cook a better career. I want to cook my love life. So you might be making wishes and, and, and petitions and all sorts of things that you are putting in here. You might want to put some little crystals with it, little charms and chimes and things. You are putting it here to bake and cook within the universe. There are simple little ones. Look at even this one little says it's a little, these kind you could get near Halloween, go to even your drugstore and find spells, potions, and creepy concoctions put wishes and magic and things within this. Let it cook, let it bake. This is my favorite one. It's the shape of an egg because things cook and they come to life in an egg. And of course it has a dragon on top because I'm a dragon girl. So this one's got special cloths and magical spell cloths that I've done. It's got special witches ladders that I've done. It's got special chants and petitions and magics that I'm done. And you can go through them sometime. You can leave them there. You will be amazed how these things can cook and hold your wish and keep your attention and your magic. Now, there's lots of other ways to put your wish under. We do a lot of candle work. And I'll say, yeah, slide that wish under your candle. Um, write it on it. Stuff it within it. But a magical box or an oven to cook your wish is great. Another way you can do it is with your is with your chalice because if you're working a lot of times again a way to create a of it is with this upside down on something or even your cauldron because again it's the cauldron when we spit it upside down there's the sky it's the sky above us when we flip the worlds. So there's lots of things you can do to create it but this time of year, you can find magical, beautiful boxes. Yes, go to your magic stores, your occult stores, your little gift shops and things and buy them. But even now, if you're on a budget right now, your local Walmart or drugstore or dollar store is going to have all sorts of fun boxes. Put your intent in it. That Yes, this could be where I put my bobby pins. Yes, this can be where you put your safety clips or 
junk and business cards. But if you're going to have it, your magic box, put that intention to it. Bless it like you would. Maybe breathe some life in it. Do a spell about your box for your box. And now you have this magic little vessel that will cook in the best way all of your wishes. So, you guys, magic is everywhere. Sometimes you just have to put it in a little box and let it cook a while. <laughs> This week's magic is a very, very knowledgeable magic, and it's all about Halloween and the supernatural and seances. Let me tell you a little bit about this week's guest. I know her. I love her. We've got to work together a couple times on some of her stories. So let me introduce you to Lisa Morton. She is an award-winning author and widely acknowledged as one of the world's leading authorities on the supernatural. Her previous books include... Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, and Ghost. I didn't read this before, sorry. I'm just going to stop there for a second. The book that I have and I can't wait to talk about is Calling the Spirits, A History of Seance. And she has a new book out, and I'm going to let her introduce that. Welcome, Lisa. Hey, thank you, Patty. It's so fun to be here. I've wanted to do your show truthfully for so long. Um, so I'm really happy that we finally get to sit down and chatter away today. Um, the new book that just came out a couple weeks ago is this one, Haunted Tales, um, Classic Stories of Ghosts and the Supernatural. This is a book of existing short stories that I edited. Um, and I'm very proud of this book. And we have some really cool stories in here. And I can also talk about ghost stories endlessly. So let's, let's go. Let's talk about Halloween seances and ghost stories. Yes, indeed. So how did you become this person, a world's leading expert on the supernatural, all about Halloween? Was it was this from childhood up or? I ask myself that question sometimes. Um, it, it It's weird. I almost fell into it by accident. Um, obviously, I always loved horror movies and horror stories and Halloween growing up. I grew up here in Southern California and um, during what I think of as the golden age of trick-or-treat. It was a huge deal for me as a kid. I loved it. But it wasn't until um, about the year 2000 that I had just done a film book with this publisher, and the film book went well, and they ended up saying, hey, do you want to do another book with us? And I looked at the books that they were publishing at the time, and they had just brought out something called the Christmas Encyclopedia, so I wrote them back and I said, hey, you know, that's cool, but there have been a bunch of Christmas encyclopedias. Nobody has ever done a Halloween encyclopedia. What do you think? And they loved it. Um, so that was my first book in sort of all of these nonfiction, supernatural history kind of things. Um, and from there, it just kind of kept going and I kept gathering more and more information and rolling it over into more and more books. I love that. Um, so what about seances? Now, I know you are an expert on the real history of seances. Again, I just got this, and I'm so excited to read this, the history of seance. I personally have been talking to the other side since I was a kid. I've been started doing seances when I was literally seven or eight. I'm just going to start saying seven and a half years old and didn't know what I was doing. But a lot of my style is a little bit that whole Victorian style. But again, I'm not an expert. I haven't studied the history of it. Um, so uh, again, I know my audience would love it because a lot of them are learning to do these things. A lot of them are mediums and mediums in training. So I know a lot about the seance gets into the theatrics and things, but tell us a little bit about where seances even come from. 
The seance is amazingly contemporary. It is not older than about 170 years old. Um, people think that it's something that goes back centuries or even millennia. It does not. It dates back to 1848 with the Fox sisters in Rochester, New York. Before that, the way that we talked to spirit was very different. Um, it was almost always a solitary act. It was usually performed by something like a necromancer or a magician. Um, it, you look at the old like medieval um, grimoires and spell books that they were using, and it, they are impossible. I mean, they call for things like lion skins and, <laughs> um, you know, just things that uh, sometimes I'm sure don't even really exist. And they would be performed like in the dead of night at a crossroads, that kind of thing. It wasn't until we get to the Fox sisters in 1848 that we get that form of people who gather around a table. And one person who is designated a medium who acts to lead this gathering of people. So that idea that people would gather together to commune with spirits is actually kind of recent. So, um, and it became a huge craze and it became the thing to do. And I mean, from like presidents on down, right? We're doing seances. I know the little bit I know President Lincoln used, were doing them in a White House because I did a film something about that. So Yeah, they sure were. Um, the, the first president who we know of who held seances in the White House was also the first president who was in the White House after the Fox sisters, and that was Franklin Pierce. And he and his wife, Jane, had suffered a recent tragedy when Franklin took office. Their young son had died um, during a terrible train accident. And so Franklin's wife, Jane, became obsessed with the idea of contacting their little boy. And she may even have had the Fox sisters to the White House. We have some like letters that indicate that it was probably them. We don't know for sure because, hey, this was a long time ago. A lot of the records have been lost. But from what she describes, it sounds like she may have invited the Fox sisters themselves to the White House to help her try and contact her son. And then, yes, you're absolutely right. We get Lincoln doing it. Um, again, a similar tragedy where they had lost a child. And yeah, seances were huge from about 1850 on. Um, the Fox sisters not only sort of created that form of the seance, they also essentially created a religion called spiritualism. Mm -hmm. And spiritualism was the idea exactly what the seance was, that you could sit down in a room with friends and someone designated as a medium and you could communicate with the dead. That part was all great. Where spiritualism actually kind of faltered was that the second part of its belief system was that it was the only religion that could be proven scientifically. Um, and it, of course, was just continually disproven <laughs> scientifically. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I think that we eventually moved from like physical mediums to trance mediums. Um, the physical mediums were the ones who were very popular in spiritualist circles in the 19th century. They were supposed to be able to produce 
ectoplasm and full body apparitions. And my favorite one was um, there was one woman named Mrs. Guppy. Agnes Guppy was her name. And Agnes was famous for a physical manifestation called a port. That's A-P-P-O-R-T. And this was the idea that she could produce something out of nowhere that would land right in the middle of the seance. And the descriptions of things that she apported during seances are actually often hilarious. There was one guy who described actually in the middle of the seance live eels falling into his lap. Um, <laughs> one of her most famous um, accomplishments was supposed to be the time she apported herself into another medium's seance. Um, that was Mrs. Guppy, and uh, she was a bit of a very flamboyant person who also was very competitive. She was accused at one point of trying to um, poison another medium and so forth. And um, so I think that the, these physical mediums who could be so easily disproven were part of why, as we go, go into the 20th century, the mediums become much more focused on trance and on actually talking to spirits rather than trying to create these physical manifestations. Um, and at that point, we start to get into more of what we would recognize as the modern medium and the modern psychic and the modern seance. Yeah, because all my years of doing this, I have never had ectoplasm. <laughs> I have never this cottony stuff coming out of my mouth. So. Um, so with the proof of that, again, that doesn't mean, you know, I know they're real. I don't even try to convince anybody. I know I can talk to the other side. But did that do a lot to hurt seances when all the maybe the more theatrical ones, whether they were ever real or not, or they weren't real at all? Um, you know, I suspect it, yeah, that there actually were one or two of the theatrical physical mediums who were never completely or did certain things that were never completely debunked that were kind of remarkable. Um, one of the most famous of all the Victorian mediums was a, a man named Daniel, Dung, uh, Daniel Douglas Hume. And Hume was famous for uh, an event that occurred, I think it's 1879, which was called the Ashley House Levitation. And this was a seance at which there were two British lords present. It took place in, I think it was the third floor of this house. And the two British lords claimed that during the seance, Hume levitated out of his chair, floated out the window, and floated back in through the window of another room. Um, and it's one of these things, this, this particular event has been debated for over a century now, with some people saying, well, if you go look at the house where it took place, you can see there's a little ledge there, and other people saying no, but that that wasn't wide enough for him to step on and so forth. Um, nobody knows quite what happened with that seance. Um, so that is one that we cannot completely discount. Um, by the way, I just have to tell you that one of my favorite stories of ectoplasm um, involved a 20th century medium named Helen Duncan, and she's one of my favorite figures in this book. Um, she was very famous for being put on trial in 1944, right in the midst of World War II. Her, her headlines for her trial were far more popular than anything to do with the war. And it got to the point where even Winston Churchill was writing these really irritated notes to his cabinet ministers saying, what's this woman doing taking away from the war effort? 
and she uh, she was put on trial for fraud um and she was eventually found guilty but even her trial was somewhat questionable frankly and she had been famous earlier in the century for producing ectoplasm and the investigators who looked into her concluded that she had an astonishing ability to regurgitate at will <laughs> that she would follow she would swallow lengths of cheesecloth before she went in to be tested, and then she could regurgitate this material at will. Now, frankly, that skill seems just as amazing to me as being able to talk to a dead spirit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, Yeah, because I once, in my old production company, before I was doing this publicly, I hired um, a magician to do a seance. Like, I worked with Milt Larson at the Magic Castle for years, but this was at a house. He went to a house and he, and his, you know, what, just like, um, his seance was amazing. It was completely fake. And it was, but it's like, how did you do that? How did you do that? Even what the, they don't, they don't call whatever they call those people who like read your minds, but they don't say that they really do it, how they do it. There is certainly a technique to, to be fake by it. But I have a dear friend done, done the show, Tim Shaw, who grew up in the spiritualist church, grew up in Lilydale, And I trust him wholeheartedly and he is legitimate, but he can, table tip and bend spoons and do all those old spiritualist things um and i've my personally done i've you know i've had people bursting into flames i've had been thrown against chairs i've had things go across the room um just no ectoplasm so it if there's both sides of the story are there but yeah swallowing cheesecloth and then regurgitating at will <laughs> right but uh, to, to go back to your question about the, the spiritualism, kind of this popularity of the seance, yes, the amount of debunking that went on in the late 19th century hurt it, but it always came back because people had a need for it. Um, during the Civil War, it surged in popularity, and during World War One, it experienced another surge in popularity because here were people who had lost loved ones. And people who had lost their sons, their brothers, their husband. And in both of those wars, uh, quite often you didn't know if your loved one was dead or just lost or lying in some hospital or in some prison. I mean, things were very different then. And so people would turn to mediums and to Ouija boards, especially during World War I, as a way to try and communicate to find either closure or answers with the loved ones who had gone missing. And that's the part of spiritualism that was completely 100% legitimate. Um, During Helen Duncan's trial, um, they brought, her, her defense brought forth dozens and dozens of people who testified not only to the fact that she really had answered questions or had talked about things that they thought she couldn't possibly have known about, but they talked about how much solace her her seances and her messages brought them. Um, and these were people who had not been built or fleeced in some significant way. They just talked about the fact that, um, and the, some of the messages during the trial were really touching. There was a woman who talked about how Helen had produced a great aunt who had passed away and great aunt had been obsessed with collecting silver while she was alive. 
And the message from the great aunt to this, this niece who was listening was the silver ended up meaning nothing. It, I couldn't take it with me. It was just all ephemeral. Um, and it, obviously people were very touched by these kind of things and really found something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's how, why I, my seances, you know, when you see on TV, my TV or anybody else's, it's the crazy wild stuff. Cause you're, you know, it was serial killers, but in real life it's, it's, warm and wonderful i've literally got i think the most magical thing that i've ever got was an iphone code from a spirit that's practical this young guy had died leaving his wife and and his little child with a thousands of pictures on his iphone they didn't have the code so he gave me the code they opened it right up you know that that's what we do it for you're not the sensationalism of this or that it's the solace like you said uh, it's okay you weren't there when i died i actually preferred it that way or whatever those messages are from spirit yeah absolutely that's amazing um so what is your thoughts uh uh what is your thoughts on ouija boards again i know that would that was a part of what this world was and everything do you think they're real do you think that it's a tool that something somebody could use do you think that's just we created this whole thing i am as much as a sort of very um, open skeptic on Ouija boards as I am on anything else, I believe there absolutely is something at work there. Um, I don't know what it is, but to me, even if it's idiomotor response, which is the idea that your fingers are twitching unconsciously to move it around, that's freaking amazing to me. That your brain would do that and would answer things in some sort of coherent fashion is amazing to me. Um, so, like I said, with the Ouija boards, I don't um, subscribe necessarily to the notion that they are inherently evil. I haven't seen proof of that. Um, I think people, if there are spirits coming through the Ouija boards, I think it's probably people are, the, the people who are operating the boards are, are the ones who are controlling it and are somehow responsible for what's going on and what's coming in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we did, or Hollywood did that, made them evil. Yeah. Because it was a communication. Because somebody will, like, they're not afraid to use a pendulum or a dowsing rod, but not the Ouija board. Yeah, kind of the same thing. They're just tools to help you along the way. But we've turned them evil, so therefore it takes on that that spirit and that reality that we have. But literally, it's a Ouija board that gave me the iPhone card. So my fingers, if they were twitching, it was twitching from something else that I certainly didn't even know this young man, let alone know his iPhone code. So yeah, yeah absolutely. And by the way, I there's another factor behind why Ouija boards are considered evil, which is called the Catholic Church. Um, because in World War One, when so many people were buying Ouija boards and were using them to try and communicate with their loved ones, the church didn't like that. And they commissioned a book called The New Black Magic. Um, I think this is 1924 when this book comes out. And this book is absolutely crazed. I mean, it, it literally says things like people who use Ouija boards are imbeciles. It will turn you into an imbecile. And I, it's just, it's the most bizarre propaganda. Um, and so that certainly contributed somewhat to the, the Ouija board's unfair bad. But yeah, The Exorcist in 1973, when the film was released at the end of 73, was certainly a huge part of it, too. Yes, yes, because it's all evil. Um, my thought is that 
you know, anything that has power behind it, whether self-created power, psychological power, real power, they, whoever they are, turn it, turn it into evil, darkness. Like, like everything from the number 13 to breaking a mirror to black cats. There's, I think there's power in all those things. Doesn't have to be good or bad, but they, whatever they are, make anything with power. Oh, that's bad. So don't do that. Like a Ouija board, like any of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll go with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so what about Halloween? You're a Halloween expert on things, correct? So you write, so, um, tell us a little bit about that. I, I love yeah, the, the little bit I know of the history, but I know you're an expert on such because it chats into Samhain, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. It does. And by the way, there's a weird bit of debate in like academic Halloween circles about how much Samhain contributed to Halloween. I fall into the camp that says it was it was the great grandma of Halloween. Um, some people believe that it had very little influence that Halloween derives entirely from All Saints Day, which, of course, is celebrated on November 1st. And with the eve starting the night before, which is where we get the name Halloween, hollow being an old name for saints. And I don't see that myself because I don't think that explains Halloween's spooky side, whereas Samhain absolutely does. Um, Samhain was the New Year's celebration for the uh, Irish Celts. It was, uh, because it was that border between two years, it was also the night when the veil between worlds was at its thinnest. And the Celts absolutely believed that on that night, things could cross over from what they thought of as the other world. Those things were very, very malicious uh, entities called the She, which we now would call fairies, but these were not like cute Tinkerbell things. These were things that would come over and light your palace on fire or bring a corpse back to life. Um, we don't know a lot about how the Celts celebrated Samhain because they didn't record their own history, but the early Catholic missionaries did. And that's what we have now to tell us about Samhain. And the, those accounts tell us that the Celts celebrated with ghost stories. They told ghost stories on Samhain. They held a great feast. Some of the accounts mentioned the feast may have gone on for three days. Um, and the ghost stories are really scary. They're weird and they're very scary still. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later and these stories are still, you read them and you go, holy crap. I mean, they're really strange. Um, so to me, there is no question that that is where Halloween gets its macabre side from. Yeah, me, me, uh, me too. But again, maybe All Saints Day too, because everything blends together like Yule and Christmas and Ostara and Easter. It's that seasonal thing that matches. But what I was always taught, um, and not modern Wicca, mo the modern, modern Wicca, but like old traditional British craft, they completely connected. They even say because it was the time the, the scary spirits were out there, that's why they would carve things. They didn't even have pumpkins on the other across the pond, but they would carve turnips and things to scare away the bad spirits. They would put on weird costumes and masks to scare away the old spirits. So I've always just connected them from the old traditional British craft belief system. They just, that's I, why I, you dress up. That's why you carve things. That's I, why, and the no. veil is thin. Yes, I think, weirdly enough, that tradition is much later than you might think. Um, the It's like I read all the time things like, oh, the Druids, the, the Celtic priest, 
would dress in costumes to scare away the, the spirits. Well, the truth is we have absolutely zero evidence to support that. Um, but the what we do have is both what came down from sound with the ghost stories and so forth, and All Souls Day, which is interesting, which comes in, the Catholic Church added All Souls Day a couple of hundred years after All Saints Day. And they did that because their, um, their parishioners were kind of pissed off that there was a day to celebrate dead saints and not their own family. So they add this day on November 2nd called All Souls Day. And they add that around 1000 AD and All Souls Day is scary because the idea on All Souls Day is that your loved ones may be stuck in purgatory, which is a very dark, scary place, and they cannot move on from, from purgatory. So you may be doing all kinds of weird things to try and get your loved one out of purgatory. You may be buying off beggars to pray for them. You, you may be dealing with witches um, who you think are attacking your farm on that night. There are these weird accounts of farmers running around their fields on All Souls Night um, with burning um, like torches, trying to keep witches from landing in their fields. And so a lot of that sort of, yeah, it's crazy. That macabre side may also come more from All Souls Day than really All Saints Day. Um, and by the time you get into like the 18th century is when we kind of see Halloween as this day that has become this odd amalgamation of things where on the one hand, it's got, there's, they're still talking about ghost stories and malicious fairies. On the other hand, people are playing these games now, which sound like they're kind of derived from some of those old All Souls Day rituals. They are, for example, going out to the field on Halloween night, and they are playing a game involving how they throw the seeds out into the field, which supposedly will tell them who they're going to end up marrying. Um, marriage was a huge part of a young person's life at this time at the late 18th century we're talking and so all of the halloween fortune telling games were about finding out who you would end up marrying and some of them are quite macabre um there was for example one where you would go to a thing called a lime kiln which was something that was found on every farm back then it was kind of like a well and you would throw a ball of yarn into this lime kiln and you would say, in the name of the devil, tell me who holds the yarn. And you would supposedly at that point fill a yank on the yarn and a, a voice would come up out of this lime kiln and say, it's Bill or it's Nancy or whatever. And that, that would be the name of your future spouse. Well, of course, young men learned about this and realized they could go hide in the lime kiln long before their girl would come out there. <laughs> and um, there are some very funny and very cruel practical joke stories about young men hiding down there and when asked who holds calling up, it's the devil and um, things like that. So yeah, so that's, um, and by the way, the first really great description we have of that kind of Halloween is 1785, the poet Robert Burns, Scottish poet wrote this immense poem that talks about all of these games they played and the stories they told about the fairies dancing on that night. And it's a beautiful poem. I highly recommend people go out and take a look at that one. Oh, thank you. That's fascinating. That, that's just amazing to me. So tell us a little bit about your book. Now, your new book, that's a fiction book, right? That you 
and yeah, so how did you get into like scary stories and things? Is it just something that attracts you in your both writing style and love of? Yeah, I mean, I grew up as a horror-loving kid. Um, I was that, I always call myself that weird little girl who wanted to be a monster instead of a princess at Halloween. Um, and fortunately, my parents were very indulgent. I think they thought this was cute, um, but they also really loved it. My mom and I would stay up and watch horror movies. And by the time I was a teenager, I knew I wanted to write horror um, for a living. And um, I actually started in screenplays and then it wasn't until I actually had some movies made of my screenplays that I realized this was not for me. Um, hmm. The reason it was not for me was because the movies sucked. <laughs> they sucked really bad. I mean, we're talking the kind of stuff that you would like watch if you were really smashed and it was four in the morning and this thing came on sci-fi channel. Um, and But there's your name plastered all over them, you know, and it's it's nothing you can be proud of. And I wanted some things that I could be proud of um, out there in the world. So I started writing horror and I, it turned out I was fairly good at it and was able to sell my stories and so forth. And then at some point I moved into editing horror. Um, and I have now done four of these collections of classic horror fiction with a gentleman named Leslie Klinger. He's my good friend, Les. We work really well together. And we just love to go out and read through old books and old magazines that people may not know about or may have forgotten and find these incredible stories. Um, there is a story in this book that I am so proud of called M. Anastasius. And it's a story that in 1855, Charles Dickens said, this is the best ghost story ever written. And he was yeah. almost not wrong. This story is so good. It's by a woman who's now completely forgotten named Dinah Mulock. Um, and yet this story is amazingly contemporary. It feels very relevant. It's about um, how a man is controlling a woman and how he continues to control her from beyond the grave. Um, it blew me away when I read it. And fortunately, Les felt the same way. So we just love unearthing those gems. Um, and we've also done two volumes of books called Weird Women, in which we very specifically focused on all the incredible women who were writing these stories. People tend to think of horror as being mostly written by men, especially if you're looking at the 19th century. But and they tend to think that, oh, the 19th century, well, there was Mary Shelley and there wasn't anyone else. No, there were hundreds of these women writing these amazing stories. And it, it was su such a pleasure to bring these women back into public light and say, look at how good these stories are. Um, so uh, we this is the fourth book that I've done with Les. And um, we just love, like I said, finding these stories. One of the things that we do is we annotate them. So we go through and we explain the things that may not make sense to a modern reader. Oh, this was a phrase that was in use back then. Oh, this is a place that they would have gone to um, to help make them more accessible. We also provide little biographies of who these authors were. Oh, that's fabulous. Ooh, I can't wait to get that one. Yeah, I was that kid too. I, I couldn't watch your local family, family sitcom drama, that family, it's like that didn't do it. My mom would let me stay up, and again, I'd be watching anything horror, all the horror movies. The Birds was my favorite. Anything Hitchcock, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits. I'd run home to watch Dark Shadows. But <laughs> Yeah, me too. Me. I remember 
my school got out at 3.20, and uh, Dark Shadows was on at 3.30, and my school was yep. like 15 minutes away, and I would ride my bike as fast as I could every day, and whatever I would miss, my mom would fill me in on. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, me too. That That is hysterical. So, yeah, so we are in. All right, so tell people, do, what, do you have something coming up or anything, or ha- where could people get your books? I want, again... You guys, I, I've read some of her stuff. We've done some stuff on stage over the holidays. I know this is an excellent writer. You are the storyteller that you are. And all of you listen, I know you like this wacky world that we love. So tell us about where people can find you, where people can find your books. Um, by the way, Calling the Spirits will be coming out in a more affordable paperback in about a month. So that'll be available soon. Um, I can easily be found at lisamorton.com. I have a couple of really fun things that are coming up. You and I have something in common, I think, called the Feminine Macabre. Yes. Um, You did the Ford for one of their volumes. I have just done the Ford for volume four, which they just announced. Um, That was a wonderful thing to be a part of. I really, really love what they're doing. Me too. And, female yeah. female stories, female edited, put together, yes. And I have learned so much reading those volumes and just, I mean, they. I love the way they also range from just a sort of casual retelling of something to something that's very academic and heavily researched, and they're, they're so fun to read. Um, so I was really honored to be asked to do the forward for volume four. And then there is actually a book that is going to be announced as I speak tomorrow, which will probably be a couple of days ago by the time this airs. But um, I will have a novella coming out next month called Halloween Beyond the Talking Board, which is about a haunted Ouija board. Um Although the central premise in this particular story is that um, the protagonist is a young woman whose sister vanished a year ago on Halloween, and now she is not sure if the messages coming through this talking board are from her sister or not, or if maybe even her sister's alive and somehow using this talking board. So that will be out from a wonderful publisher called Crystal Lake Publishing. And it's part of a trio of novellas with two other incredible women writers, Lucy Snyder and Kate Mariama. Um, I've read all three of them. They're all fantastic. So I can't wait for that to be available. Oh, that's fabulous. So lisamorton.com, everybody check her out. Um, And... And I guess, should I not tell people to go find your movie somewhere? <laughs> I like I like bad horror movies. I must say, I, I like them all. Do you think, just before we go, I'm just so curious. Do you think that, be, okay, your writing turned into movies didn't work in your thought? Who knows? Do you think it's what they did to your writing or your writing was more created to be read and not acted out? I kind of think it's both. Um, I... What they did to the scripts was certainly pretty severe. Um, There is at least one of my movies. I had about six feature films produced. There is at least one that bears no resemblance but the title and one character name. Wow. I mean, we're talking like this bears 1% resemblance to my script. I think the best I ever got was the very first movie I did, which was a very bizarre sort of science fiction-y comedy called Meet the Hollowheads. That had about a 70% resemblance to the script. Um, And I still am fairly fond of that movie. 
most of the rest, I just, you know, you they're just not what I put on the page. And when I started publishing short stories and writing them, um, not only was the whole process just felt like home, but so did the community, um, the whole publishing community. And the people who write horror are really, really cool, nice people, um, which surprises people to hear. I know they tend to think we must be all sort of messed up and abused as children and neurotic and so forth, but we're not. We're, we tend to be really open, giving, wonderful people. And I just felt like I'd come home as soon as I started getting into that community. And I agree wholeheartedly. I say the same thing about the paranormal community. Mm-hmm. The ghost people, nicest people you've ever met, just got back from a ship in Paracon, and it was nothing but a love fest. <laughs> nothing but a love fest. So, yeah. You know, we who like the dark, weird side of things are really nice people. I guess so it's that's those really nice people you have to be careful. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. They're like, we're right. perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I'm um, dying to go to Michigan Paragon. Some you years, you would do so well I, there. You have to. It's the funnest I, one. I mean, they're all fun, but. Yeah. It's one of these years. I definitely want to want to go. And people buy book. People love books. There, um, I forget his name. I should know his name, but he gave us. And he's a, and he's not like a paranormal. He's he's more like in, not in your world, but he's not like I'm an investigator. I'm on a reality show or anything. And he's a good storyteller, like you. They after his little speech, they lined up and they bought out all his ten book stacks of books. So you will do well there. I I promise. I know that. Yeah, I'm psychic. <laughs> yeah so um thank you so much lisa this is fascinating you guys check it out lisa morton check out the books calling the spirits her new one the tales and there's a bunch of other ones out there lisamorton.com so thank you lisa oh thank you so much patty this is so fun thank you and halloween's a coming yay <laughs> yay